TwoQuestions.tv. Brief questions, deep knowledge for executives, entrepreneurs, and small business owners. Welcome to TwoQuestions.tv. I'm your host, Susan Barancini Mo. I'm joined today by Mike Michalowicz, who launched and sold two multi-million dollar companies. He's the founder of Profit First Professionals, a membership organization of accountants, bookkeepers, and coaches who teach the Profit First method. This method in this book. He is a former columnist for the Wall Street Journal. He's a popular keynote speaker. He shared his insights on business and entrepreneurship at TEDx, Create Live, and others. And he's the author of The Pumpkin Plan and The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, and his columns have appeared in Entrepreneur, Open Forum, and Harvard Business Review, and he helped me break a Guinness World Record. Mike, thanks for joining me on the show. Oh, it's a joy to be here. I, I'm calling in from an extended stay as I... <laughs> Do my travels across the country for you know, speaking about profit first. So welcome to my kitchenette. Oh, what a lovely kitchenette it is, too. <laughs> I understand they make excellent snack bars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you saw me chewing down on one earlier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I told you before when we were chatting that I'm going to tell you a little story, and I want my viewers to hear this story, so this is new to you. But viewers, this is the book, Profit First. I will now tell you a story about how this changed my life. Um, so I used to be one of those people who, when tax time came around, I got really nervous because I never knew what I owed. I never knew how bad it was going to be. And I just, I didn't really think about it. I didn't really plan for it. My prayer and my hope was that I would have enough expenses to offset any income and that stopped working after a while. And then I read this book and, um, now I want to say I want, I was kind of like your friend Greg now, but I'm not going to use his nickname because some viewers haven't yet read the book and they might not understand the joke. So <laughs> viewers read the book, you'll get the joke, but, <laughs> but now I love tax time. And, and so this actually changed the way I feel throughout the entire year because when it's time to pay tax, I don't feel nervous. I don't get uncomfortable. In fact, I'm excited. Like right now I'm like, <laughs> I know what's in that account. I can't wait because I know I'm getting some of it. I'm going to keep some of it. And I'm also not giving someone else my money to, to use and I'm never worried about it. So, so this book was really pivotal for me. So thank you, Mike. You're very welcome. <laughs> now, so this kind of leads into my first question today. Um, you talk in the book a lot about winning the war of the mind, that yes. so much of profitability is about what's going on in your head. And it almost seems like the profit first plan is kind of foolproof, but I had to stop and wonder because um, many of my clients either had brain junk around money that came from childhood or they went through the great recession and they have a lot of risk. There's a lot of fear and uncertainty around the future. Um, and, and I have to admit, like I kind of went through that too. So um, what does the profit first plan do if you have money brain junk? Yeah. So first of all, if you have money brain junk, I want to realize there's a label for that. It's called being a human being. <laughs> I think, I think most of us have that. I have it. And what profit first is, is a mechanism that channels our natural behavior. The great discovery was this, that when we try to change a behavior an established habit in ourselves, it's nearly impossible. We often use willpower. Uh, if, if I was a smoker, I know smoking is not good for me. Everyone knows smoking is not good for them. Um, I can try to use willpower to stop smoking and say, you know, I really should and I can't. But at a certain point, the craving overcomes me. And it doesn't have to be smoking. It could be our diet. Which it could be, I'm, I'm a fiend for chocolate chip cookies. 
you can put them Who down in front it? of me. And I, I can it? say no, I can say no a dozen times, but the 13th time, I'm all over it. I, I give in, it fatigues. Well, when it comes to accounting and managing our money, we've been told by traditional accounting, which by the way has existed for 200 years now, traditional modern accounting for 200 years has told us, read the income statement, the balance sheet, the cash flow statement, understand your metrics, your KPIs, all these different things, mm -hmm. and never look at your bank balance because it's all documented in those documents. And once you review that, you'll know where your business stands. But what I found our natural behavior was, my natural behavior was, was to go to my phone, log in and look at my bank balance. So I said, huh, instead of trying to fight who we are and then letting our mind junk kind of just dictate these strange, often detrimental behaviors, why don't we have a system that works with who we already are to allow us to continue our normal human behavior? So Profit First is a behavioral management tool. Uh, and there's a couple elements I'll talk about real quickly. One is you talked about taxes. Uh, that guy you're referring, his name is Greg Eckler. Uh, he was my, and ironically, I saw him about three weeks ago. He came to my house and visited. He was an old fraternity brother from the college days. His nickname, I will say it, is Elf Turd. Uh, <laughs> I gave him that, so Greg Eckler got bastardized to Greg Elk Turd. Ah. And, and, his, and his, own, his own wife calls him that when she's upset with him now. <laughs> but here's what happens with taxes taxes when we have to pay april 15th out of our pocket we experience a behavioral phenomena called loss aversion loss aversion is where we possess something for a period of time but then it's taken away from us mm. just like if you got a new car and then all of a sudden you can't make a car payment and the car is repossessed that's very painful and when we experience loss aversion, we go to extraordinary measures to prevent the loss. Maybe I'll take the insur drop the insurance of my car off my car to save the money there, and I'll just store it in my garage. I can never drive it again, but at least I can make the payment. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll take on a second job uh, doing something just so I can afford the payment for that car. Now, the thing is, I could have done all those extraordinary things before I possessed the car, but I didn't own it then, so there was no loss. Therefore, I didn't do those extraordinary things. It's only once I possess something and I'm threatened with loss do I go to these extreme measures. Mm -hmm. It's often illogical. And that's what happens with taxes. When our tax bill is due and, and we have the money in our own bank account, we panic. We say, oh my God, the, the government's taking money from me. So what do we do? We go to extraordinary measures. We, we talk with our accountant. They say, just spend money on anything. Blow your money on expenses. They'll cut your tax bill. Spend $10 to save $3, really is what they're teaching us. Uh, yeah. We go on these ridiculous payment installment plans where the government is crushing us. But in Profit First, when the business reserves the taxes on our behalf, when the money comes out, the money's reserved on our behalf, but we, the owner of the business, don't get the money. It just sits there in a pool. When the tax bill comes due, there's actually a sense of relief, actually pride. Hey, my business paid my taxes for me. Yes. <laughs> it's the same amount of money, but it now works with our mindset. There is no, the loss aversion is taken away. So that's just one example. Profit First is steeped with all these different behavioral tools so that it works with our natural behavior and profit becomes you know, effectively automatic. 
you know, it's funny. Um, I actually, I, I think I told you, I, I don't follow all the rules because my overhead just yeah. isn't that high. But, um, but one of the things that, um, one of the rules I actually broke um, was because I, I just wanted to see the, the tax account grow. And I know you're supposed to put that in a different bank, but I like that. I, I don't, I have access to it, but I, I only need to transfer money into it. And I really get excited to see that number get bigger and bigger throughout the year. I'm like, oh, I'm going to have so much money to play with. Cause I have in my, in my spreadsheet, in my, um, my bookkeeping tool, it tells me exactly how much I'm going to owe. Right. And I have a lot more in that account than I need, oh, but beautiful. oh, it's so exciting. <laughs> You're effectively issued. Here's the funny thing with, with taxes when it comes to like a refund, for example. Mm -hmm. when, when we pay taxes and the government then sends us money back, some people go, oh my God, I got a refund this year. This is amazing. That's, oh, our, that's yeah. our own money coming back to us. Yes, and, and the government had use of that interest right. rate. Right. And, and, and that's, that's, what, that's what our accountants tell us. Like, don't do that because the government's getting free money from you. But we have to actually acknowledge the human behavior. When something comes back to us, we feel excitement and joy. So that's actually a good thing. And our accountants, of course, that mathematically it's better to retain that money and earn interest on it. But I'm saying, no, no. If we get joy out of receiving money, your situation actually is a good situation. Yeah. You're issuing your own refund. You have an excess of money in your tax account. You pay your tax liability. There's some left over, you feel excitement because there's a reward mechanism. It doesn't yeah. make logical sense, but it makes behavioral sense. And that's what Profit First is all about. Work with our behaviors and we'll be wildly profitable. Exactly. Exactly. And and like you, I had a year where I had to scramble to find the money to pay the IRS. And it was yeah. terrifying. Yeah. And I'm never letting that happen again. So, <laughs> so you know, just, just one more part to that. You know, I, I want everyone to realize that's watching this is income tax is our responsibility. It is law. Uh, we are effectively an agent for the government. So when you collect $100, depending on the tax bracket you're in, but just for an easy number, we'll say 25%. Mm -hmm. When you collect $100, $25 you collected on behalf of the government. So you're a government agent. And that's why we allocate that money out immediately to the tax account and reserve it there because that is your your legal requirement to do this. Right. And I think when we have certain simple realizations like that, that it was never our money in the first place, when we collected it and we instantly divide it out for the government, that it releases that loss effect, that sense that the government's taking advantage of us. By the way, I'm not suggesting, by the way, the government's doing great things with our money or anything like that. But I am no. suggesting that if we allocate money out before we use the money, if, if we put money into a tax account and see its purpose before we spend a dime, we will have more comfort in knowing what the purpose is and therefore act more rationally. I will say it was hard to do at first. Um, and I think partly because I wasn't used to it and because I kept thinking, oh, the government. But at the same time, now when I'm, you know, out driving down the road, when I'm out, you know, it, you know, driving across a bridge, you know, of course there's some infrastructure problems. Let's not get too political. But, <laughs> but I think, um, yeah, I think about that stuff. I'm like, my little nest egg is yeah. going to pay for these things. I feel pretty good about that. Yeah. So I have no problem with that. Um, okay, so so on the other side of the equation, now I know Profit First is a lot about kind of the, the once you've got money coming in part, but there was a little section in the book uh, where you talked about firing bad clients and cloning good ones. 
And anytime I've coached a client to do that, the response is, and I know you know what I'm going to say probably, the response is always, I can't fire any clients and still survive. I need those clients. And if I could clone my best clients, I'd be rich. So if we're talking about someone like, you know, like a solopreneur or like a coach or a web designer or somebody who needs every client that he or she has to survive, maybe the first place to start is having them clone their best clients before they fire the bad ones so they don't lose that income immediately. And so my question is, is that right? And if so, what's the best pl- best way to do that? What's the best way to clone? I mean, we can fire bad clients, but what's the best way to clone good clients? Oh, I, I'll give you all that stuff. So uh, before, <laughs> before I wrote Profit First, I actually dedicated a book to this topic. It's, it's called The Pumpkin Plan. And so that's why I'm good Profit book. First. I only make a good short book. reference to it. I point, thank you. So I point back to the pumpkin plan. Um, I want people to realize it's a stepping strategy. So first we have to get real about what a good client and bad client is. Most entrepreneurs feel, and I felt, any client that paid me is the definition of a good client. They may not be good people, but for me, and I'm not saying, by the way, they're bad people. I mean, they may not be good people for me. Meaning I may not be comfortable with them. There may be conflict. But I felt that if it brought in revenue, Whoever it was, it brought in money, and I need that. Until I did an analysis, and it is a profit analysis. There was a study conducted, uh, the company was called Strategex in uh, Chicago, and they ran a study which seems to be true for almost every business I've ever worked with. They studied about 10,000 companies, and they put their clients, those companies' clients, into quartiles, meaning the top 25% of revenue generators the middle upper 25, the middle lower 25, and the lowest 25% of revenue generators. Then they did the analysis of profit. And here's what was fascinating. The top quartile of clients generated 150% of a company's profit, which already sounds like it makes no sense because only <laughs> a company can only have 100% profit, right? I mean, how can a client do more than, than 100% of its total profit? But it actually, the top quartile represented 150% of a company's total profit. The middle two were basically break even. The lowest quartile resulted in a minus 50% uh-huh. profitability, meaning our lowest quartile clients are costing us to stay in business with them. And therefore, our biggest clients were making up for and carrying our weakest clients. I encourage everyone watching this, do a quick analysis. Sort your clients out by revenue. Look at the lowest 10% of your clients on revenue basis. See, ask yourself, how much time do I spend on that? And when you see how much time you spend on the client, you can figure out your hourly return. I bet you, without even knowing who's watching right now, you may have a client that at the top of the list that generates tens of thousands of dollars, I don't know what the number is, and you spend five hours or 10 hours, a short amount of time to deliver that big project. That's a huge money winner. Conversely, at the bottom of the list, I suspect you have a few clients that generate you know, a few hundred bucks and you spent like 40, 50 hours to care for that client and they're still not happy. They're still pissed and they won't pay their bills. Literally, if you have a client that you spend you know, 50 hours of work for and you, you, you got a hundred bucks, you're making two bucks an hour. Like, please drop that company, you know, drop your entire business and go work at McDonald's. You'll, you'll make more money than this. So you have to realize that your lowest clients uh, in revenue often, but not always, are your lowest profit generators and often are costing you to be in business. And that doesn't even account the emotional cost. 
you know, one client that's never happy. They always complain. I know you're thinking about them right now when you go to bed. I am. <laughs> when you go to bed, you're thinking of them. When you wake up, you think of them. All that time spent worrying and thinking about these crappy clients could be spent on improving your business. So we got to fire that weakest client. But here's the immediate impact. If you do this analysis, when you fire your lowest client, you actually often get an immediate revenue boost, immediate profit boost, I should say, because you're not wasting time on them. But the bigger thing is that the emotional weight goes away. So now you can concentrate on your best clients. So step one, I would argue, start off again. Also build your courage. Because a lot of people say, well, if I get rid of that one client that makes a hundred bucks a year for me or whatever the low number is, I really never that money may never return. Because it frees up such an, a tremendous amount of time, it'll allow you to focus on the other opportunities that are surely in front of you, but you're blind to because you're distracted by this weak client. So I would argue, start off by laying off one really bad client. And you can do that simply, just increase prices. Call them and say, uh, as we're, our business is moving forward, uh, we, we need to support our infrastructure, we're tripling our prices. And they'll say, see ya. By the way, <laughs> if they do say see ya, when you triple your prices, that means they're price shoppers. They're not looking for the value you deliver. So who wants a price shopper anyway? Then, now we go on to cloning our best clients. Here's how you do it. That same list that you stored by revenue. Circle the clients um, that generate the most revenue and you get the most joy and satisfaction out of serving. Uh, sometimes it's not the first client on the list. They're a big ge revenue generator, but you may not like that client for some reason. You don't jive with them. Look for another client made down the list that you love working with and pays you well. Because when they pay you well, they're demonstrating through their behavior, they value you. And if you enjoy working with them, you automatically provide them with good service. You prioritize the people you care for and you push off or delay the people you don't like. You know, that client that calls up that you don't like, you're like, oh, I'll call them back later. I'll send it's them to them. voicemail. <laughs> right, so that's not priority service. So identify and circle the top client. Then to clone them, three questions you got to ask. Ask your best client, and I would take them out to lunch. Ask them, what am I doing right? Now, here's the power of that question. It is a Jedi mind trick. They will not tell you what you're doing right. They will instead tell you what they observe and what they judge you on. Mm. For example, I had a client, uh, when I used to have my computer company, that was my first business uh, that I ultimately sold to private equity. When I had that business, I, my best client was a hedge fund. I asked the hedge fund owner, Larry, I said, what are we doing right? He said, Mike, what I really appreciate about you is your quick response. You get on site back, you get on our on site within four hours when we have a problem. This is back in 1996, 97, a couple of decades ago now. And, uh, and I said, and which was a big deal in responding that quickly. He said, when our computers go down, we, you know, we trade stock, we go to our backup systems, but we need our main systems up as quickly as possible. Our last computer guy took a day or even two to get to us. You guys do it within only four hours. Now remember, what you're doing right is actually not what you're doing right. It's the thing that you're judged by. It's the thing you need to improve. So I started oh. figuring out a way to get on site within 15 to 20 minutes. I simply dispatched myself or a technician always to be within the radius of my best client. When his network went down, we were on site instantly and he was thrilled. I knew he would be because he told me. So do more of what you're doing right. What happens is the word gets out. 
Larry started telling other hedge fund owners, you know, we have a response team that gets on site within 20 minutes when we have a computer outage. That was remarkable for hedge funds. We started getting calls from everyone. Wow. Do more of what you're doing right. Second question is, what's, what am I doing wrong? But don't ask it with those words, because if I ask you, you know, is there something wrong with me right now? It's socially inappropriate face-to-face -to, -face to say what's wrong. Like, you know, if I got something on my face, you can't say it. it it's socially inappropriate. Instead, measure people by what they say about the industry. So I asked Larry, I said, what's wrong with my industry? What's wrong with other computer guys? Now is the person outside the room so we can have a candid conversation. And he started rattling off things he didn't like about his last computer guy. What he didn't like about them is the stuff I need to improve. So that's step number two. And the third step, and this is how you clone the best clients, to answer your question, is ask your best client what other vendors do they currently work with, which sounds like a weird question to ask. Hmm. So I told Larry, I said, hey, Larry, what, what other, or asked Larry, what other vendors do you depend on? He looked at me and said, why do you care? What's your clients <laughs> do? And I said, Larry, if I know, I'm your computer guy. If I know the security company, the electrician, uh, you know, th these other companies you work with, maybe I can collaborate with them and serve you better. Because if I know when your security company is, is upgrading the security system, I'm surely not going to come in and work on the computer systems at that time. Uh, maybe your computer system can tie into your security system and be one cohesive unit. But I don't even know who they are, so I can't explore these things. Well, when I started telling Larry my reason to know other vendors of his was to collaborate with him to serve him better, he was blown away. No one had ever asked him. I'm now concentrating my efforts to serve Larry, our mutual client, better. I called this security company and other businesses, and they picked up the phone immediately because I said, hey, Larry told me to call you, a great client. We have instant rapport because we share a client. And then I said, listen, what can I do to serve you, security company, you, electrician, you, other people? What can I do to serve you better with Larry? And I truly went to collaborate. And then the miracle moment happened. By working close to a security company, I got the call after starting to work with them, maybe it was like six or seven weeks later, they had another hedge fund that they were doing specialized security for. And they said, hey, the hedge fund manager doesn't like their current computer company. Would you be interested in the work? And I'm like, hells yes. yes. <laughs> uh, and got the work. And that started cloning my best clients. I'm telling you, once you identify what I call the vendor well, who is the vendor community serving that number one client of yours? They're serving a lot of clients like that. When you tap into that vendor well, explosive growth happens. You clone your best clients. Now, I'm going to tell you, probably a lot of coaches are going to watch this. I'm not sure coaches, like executive coaches like me and life coaches, I can see how a business coach could totally put that in practice. But what about for us? This is a bonus question, sort of a sub question. I like it. Question um, 2A. 2A, that's right. Um, I do this once in a while, I cheat. Um, but, but how does someone do that if they're kind of in that little, a little niche that doesn't have a lot? I mean, who are you going to? Who am I going to, let's say you're me, who am I going to, who's in my well? Yeah. So your, your clients always know the answer. So what I would do if, if I'm a business coach, mm -hmm. I would go to my best clients and say, who else works with you? Now, these, if you're a business coach, I'm assuming you're working with business owners. They may say, Oh, you know, I, I have a marketing system I use uh, that I yeah. love to leverage. I, you know, I use software, so I'm a business owner myself. I have an accounting system I use. I have this and that. 
it's often these unexpected introductions that are the best. If you knew the accounting system I used and the relationship of the accounting company, and you said, hey, listen, I'm your business coach. You know, I'm giving you coaching on growing your business with, and there's financial impact. If I know the accounting system you're using, maybe there's a better way of categorizing things. Maybe there's a way I'm complementing that. I'd love an introduction to your software company for your accounting system. Well, they may have, they may be supporting thousands of business owners. Now you can collaborate with them in serving. The key is not co-marketing. This is not calling up, hey, we right. should do a webinar together. Right. But how do we serve Mike better? And what you'll do is you're going to find ways that you automatically mesh. You'll find, yeah, maybe you start categorizing things a certain way. So it goes in the accounting system and now it runs more smoothly. Now you can come back to the accounting software company and say, listen, I've, I've found ways to better categorize things in the, in the coaching space. Um, Mike is really thrilled. And I will even call them and say, I, I can't believe how great this is. Now they'll say, wow, what if they did this for other clients of ours? Now they would have a seamless experience too. And they'll start wanting to automatically make introductions. Once you get to that inherent desire to make introductions, yeah. that's where you go, hey, let's do a webinar together. Hey, let's do this and that. But you first must work collaboratively to care for your numero uno client. The, the, the mistake businesses make of all types, be a business coach, just anyone that follows a system, is they call whoever I introduce you to, that software company for accounting, they call them and say, hey, we have a mutual client. Can you give me referrals? That is not, oh. that is not the, you, you, first you dance before you go on a date. Like yes. it, it is way too fast, too much, too intense. Yeah. Look to establish a relationship where you can mutually serve a, a consistent established client first and then build from there. That is such an important piece. And I, I hope everyone paid attention to that. I hope everyone paid close attention to that. That's huge. That's absolutely huge. Mike, thank you so much. It's fantastic. Oh, it's been my joy. So from uh, Extended Stay America. Yes. Thank <laughs> and folks, the, the book is Profit First. Make sure you get this book. We'll have the link to all of Mike's books in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this interview and you found it informative and engaging, please be sure to subscribe for more interviews like this to make your life and your business more successful. Thanks for watching. I'll see you next time. This has been twoquestions.tv. To subscribe to our YouTube channel, learn more about the show, the guests, and our host, Susan Barancini-Mo, visit us at www.twoquestions.tv.